And welcome to the podcast of Tech EU. This is our episode number 141, recorded on November 5th, 2019. Today we will talk about UiPath, about ID Now and Verif, the OECD United Approach proposal, the new podcast series from our friend Martin Bryant, and much more. We will also run a conversation with Mark Durno, the managing partner at Rockstart AgriFood in Copenhagen. I am your host, Andrew Degler, joined today by our research lead, Natalie Novik. Hey, Natalie, how's it going? Hi, Andre. It's going well over here. It is a little bit crazy because we're now taping the Tech You podcast with two chihuahuas and two black cats. Um, I came back from Startup Week Dublin and I found out my husband has adopted a cat and another dog. So it is a bit of an animal farm over here now. Oh, this is great. Well, at least I, I think that both uh, black cats are now sleeping, or at least they would uh, wreak uh, much more uh, havoc, but the chihuahuas are restless. Yes, so hopefully we can get through this podcast today uh, without too much um, chaos. Okay, let us try. And I have to say that this is uh, one of the moments where I really, really, really regret not having a video stream of this podcast, because then uh, all the people listening to us would have been able to see you uh, holding, uh, holding the dog uh, through the whole episode. Well, let's see if I can maintain my hold on him, because he's not making it easy. All right, let's see. Uh, let's dive in then uh, for now. And uh, what I wanted to talk this week is uh, UiPath. And UiPath is a company that works with robotic process automation or RPA. And it's, uh, I guess, one of the uh, bigger advocates of uh, the industry uh, in the world. The company is currently headquartered in New York, actually, but it was founded and grown in Romania. So I would say it's European enough for us to discuss. And the question from the last week was, what is actually going on at UiPath? So... Over the past couple of years, uh, UiPath has been an example of a successful and uh, rapidly growing startup. And just a few months ago, it raised 568 million US dollars in funding at a valuation of 7 billion US dollars. And uh, in total, money it's raised uh, totals uh, at a billion US dollars. So what could possibly go wrong? Something apparently did, as UiPath announced last week, that it would cut about 400 jobs, decreasing its headcount from some 3,200 to about 2,800 people. The news comes just a few weeks after the startup held a conference in Las Vegas that reportedly costed 8 million US dollars. I mean, I do understand that this amount wouldn't really cover 400 people's salary for more than a couple of months, but still, the contrast, I would say, doesn't look great for UiPath. And also the timing of the announcement is quite far from ideal because we've all just witnessed the, say, unfortunate series of events at uh, WeWork, uh, which almost went bankrupt and was recently bailed out by SoftBank. And now stories like UiPath's job cuts fit too well into the narrative of overblown valuations and uncontrolled spending by companies that are yet to make any profit. 
Of course, the story provoked critical comments and analysis right away uh, with this sort of optics. The publication called Information Age has called it, I quote, a major credibility crisis for UiPath, the quote ends. And it talked to an analyst uh, named Phil First, who said that the startup, I quote again, pushed the hype around RPA far too aggressively, the quote ends. In addition to that, an anonymous source told an information age that UiPath is burning cash at a rate that is, I quote again, significantly higher than any other RPA player, the quote ends. Answering all this, UiPath CEO and founder Daniel Dines published a blog post in which he tried, rather awkwardly, to spin the news as a positive thing for the company. Among other things, he noted that UiPath has increased its workforce by 60% over the past 10 months and that it will end the year with almost 50% more employees than it had in January. I'm not really sure if this is a huge consolation for the people who have just been terminated, and it does sound a little bit tone-deaf, as uh, VentureBeat argued in its story. So, that's the story in general, and... Uh when I started researching it uh, a couple of days ago, I rather agreed with the take of information age, that UiPath might be one of the yet another cash-bloated startups uh, that's showing the signs of an inevitable demise. But then I kind of realized that part of what fueled this opinion for me was, as I mentioned last week as well, that I just finished reading Mike Isaac's book on Uber on one side and finally started Bad Blood, the book about Terranos. And at the same time, I started listening and Natalie, your recommendation uh, of the podcast about the missing crypto queen. So these books and this podcast, they certainly bring up certain cynicism, I would say, to the way you read tech startup news. And when I realized that, I kind of tried to put the timing and perspective related things aside. And I mean, now I actually think that this story doesn't mean much more than UiPath as many other startups before it just didn't carefully calculate its growth trajectory and maybe hiring strategy. And I've seen it more than once already. I mean, when you are growing like crazy and UiPath certainly did just that, you may have little time to think about streamlined processes and lean operations and whatnot. And then you indeed end up with more people than you actually need. So my take here is that, yes, it is a really bad thing for the people who got the axe. But at the same time, I don't think it necessarily means for the company that uh, it's in a bad shape. So I would say just let's see uh, what uh, happens next and uh, what uh, happens in the industry of RPA in general. Natalie, have you read uh, the news about it? What do you think? I've seen a little bit about it, but something about UiPath is that it is one of those companies that everyone is talking about, and there's a lot of hopes and expectations about their technology. So do they amount to the hype? I'm not sure, but yesterday I just published a new reverse pitch uh, from Concentric Ventures, and they've mentioned UiPath as being the one startup that that they um, from their anti-portfolio that they wish that they were able to take it, to invest in. They didn't have their fund altogether in time um, to invest in the company. But something that is interesting that you mentioned this this $8 million conference they had in Las Vegas. Andre, why weren't we invited to that one? Yeah, that's a good question. Probably we're a bit too far and maybe we are not the target audience. I'm, I'm not sure it was a conference in a general sense. Maybe it was mostly for like clients and stuff like that. We don't use robotic process automation at TechEU yet, but we should, we should certainly think about it. Yeah, maybe we should. So, Natalie, what was your uh, topic for the week? 
Yeah. So this week I wanted to talk about a new investment into a company that you might already be a user of, but have no idea about. Hmm. So this company is called ID Now, which is a Munich based digital identity verification company. And they've just raised 40 million euros. And the size of the round gives you a pretty good indication of the size of the market for identity verification. It's considerable and growing every day. While you might not have known that ID now exists, the company describes itself as the quote, identity verification platform that users love, end quote. ID now was founded in 2014 and today they have offices in Munich and in Paris. The funding announcement last week brings their total investment to over 53 million euros, according to their press release. And since their founding, ID Now have been gaining quite a bit of traction. And today the company claims nine of the 15, quote, most successful fintech companies in Germany, end quote, rely on ID Now for their online verification needs. N26 is one of those that is named. The company is successful outside of Germany, too. For example, they're used by the Royal Bank of Scotland and by UBS. They're also used by other companies besides banks, including Sixth, which is the car rental company. But what does IDNow do? So according to the firm, and I'll quote here, IDNow uses artificial intelligence to check all security features on ID documents and can, therefore, reliably identify forged documents potentially the identities of more than 7 billion customers from 193 different countries can be verified in real time, end quote. It has a few other features as well, allowing customers to electronically sign documents and video identity. And this was one of the features that was used by N26. I'm not sure if they do use it anymore. But let's talk a little bit about the market and a little bit about a European competitor firm that you might have heard something about. And that company is Verif, which was founded in Estonia in 2015. They're aiming to be the, quote, stripe of digital identity, unquote. They went through Y Combinator and have grown enormously. And today they have over 300 employees. I had a chance to visit Verif's offices over the summer to learn a little bit about this online identity verification. And the story of Verif dovetails nicely with the story of Estonia and their work to bring their citizens online and ensure everyone has a digital identity. So the success of a company supporting digital IDs from here makes a lot of sense. But as you might expect, Verif had a few local competitors in this space, and they acquired one, a browser ID, earlier this year. They haven't raised quite as much money as ID Now. Last year, they raised a 7.7 million Series A round led by Mosaic Ventures. But they've been acquiring a lot of customers both in banking, but also in ride sharing. This summer, they were named the company that verifies users on the city of Berlin's new multi-mode mobility app. As the market for these products grows, something that was uncomfortable for me and a question that I could not have answered when I was in Estonia was solutions like Verif and IFD Now are often white label software. They are purchased and used by enterprise companies such as banks to run congruent within existing solutions. That means that individual customers don't necessarily have a relationship with these providers or a choice to share their most personal documents with them or not. So if you want to use the services of the bank, they might not have an alternative. 
So while you might be comfortable with sharing your personal documents with your bank, as in the past, these transactions might have been done in person with a banker that you might have had a longstanding relationship with, you might not be as comfortable sharing them with an Estonian company that you don't know about and maybe don't even know exists. That's why we have GDPR, which, of course, makes sure that consumers are informed that their information is shared with third parties. But how many of them know that this is what is going on? And if you want to use Jelby, which is the Berlin commuting app, you have to use Verif. And there is no getting around it. The more providers you're unwittingly sharing your information with, the more potential areas for entry should there be a cybersecurity attack. Estonia's digital identity programs and digital citizenship schemes work because the people trust the government to be a responsible steward of their private and most personal information. They are accountable to the public in a way that corporate entities can't be. For private companies handling this information, if we care about privacy at all, and well, that's arguable because for a lot of people, it doesn't seem to matter that much. But if you do care about it, you have to put a lot of trust into these firms that you don't necessarily have a personal relationship with. And I don't see necessarily what they're doing to earn that trust. Speaking to that point, something else we couldn't have answered when we were in Estonia was to what degree of human oversight or checking there is for the AI. While both of the firms utilize AI to verify documents, and they don't give out too much information about how they do that. While we do know that there is no AI that is infallible, both of these firms claim to be able to identify documents from over 190 countries using artificial intelligence. But if you've ever gone across the border in Europe using a non-EU passport, you will see the level of scrutiny that it goes through, sometimes requiring more than one person to analyze. And these providers can verify these documents using just a webcam. In any case, there's still some questions out there to be answered, because what we can be sure of is that these tools are going to become a lot more common. Okay, I have... I have a, a few remarks on it. It's, it's also interesting, first of all, that uh, this uh, verification is used uh, with uh, Jelby because uh, both of these companies are actually coming from the from the Baltic uh, region. Jelby, uh, I think, it's a product by Traffy, and Traffy is a Lithuanian startup, and uh, Verif is obviously Estonian. So this is interesting that two companies uh, from the Baltic states end up uh, producing a solution for uh, for Berlin's uh, urban commute. As for your points, I'm not sure, like. For First of all, about uh, this uh, third-party sharing. I would say that in this case, the end responsibility lies with the organization that you have your relationship with. If it's a bank, then it's a bank. If it's uh, whatever else, uh, any other organization, it's that. And I would trust in general my bank enough to assume that it has uh, tested and uh, checked and made sure that uh, uh, this uh, third-party service provider kind of uh, cares about your data and uh, it uh, cannot leak. So I'm not I'm not that that worried about it. I I think it's fair to assume that. I definitely agree with you there. But also, where is the data being stored? Where is it being held by? It obviously needs to be checked and verified on some server somewhere. Where is that exactly? And by what process? Yeah, that's a big question. It really makes sense to 
I don't know, maybe dig deeper into it and try and check whether there is uh, any explanation. But are you using uh, uh, RBS at all? No, I'm not. But I, I was using N26 for a while where right. they did use some of these features, which I thought were pretty impressive. But at the time, I didn't necessarily know that they were a product that wasn't um, made in-house by N26. Right. Yeah, I don't think I have ever had to do any uh, the, uh, any of this uh, sort of things, like making photos of your documents and sending them through to an app uh, to make sure that uh, I, I get the verification. I think Airbnb is the only place where I sent uh, copies of my documents, and I have no idea if they're using any sort of service provider for that. But uh, I also wanted to make a remark on the AI part, because... so. Uh, both of these companies indeed say that they're using AI for verification. And I don't know about ID now, but I did interview Verif uh, a few months ago at a conference, at TechChill actually, so in February. And uh, what was said back then, and it wasn't a secret, was that uh, for Verif, most of the verification actually was done still by humans. So like, uh, of course, each company has to train their models, uh, has to train their AI, has to make sure that no mistakes are made during this verification process but right now i'm not sure that we can actually uh, say uh, that ai is doing that because this is one of the reasons why Verif has uh, these uh, 300 employees because most of them are actually those uh, sitting there and um, looking at those documents uh, and um, making sure that these documents are verified within those 60 seconds that is uh, the promise on the website yeah, so that's really interesting. And thanks for adding that, Andre. So it'd be very compelling to see how ID now, what their what their AI actually does look like. Yeah. Next time I go to Berlin, I will uh, get myself an account with this uh, Yelby thing and uh, uh, check how the document verification works. That sounds really good. Now we can move on to the interview of the day. And this is a conversation with Mark Durno, the managing partner at Rockstar AgriFood, which I recorded in Copenhagen at Tech Barbecue. Let's listen together and we'll be back soon for our books and stories and podcast recommendations. Hello, uh, this is Andre Degelo reporting today for Tech EU from Copenhagen at Tech Barbecue Conference. And I'm catching up with Mark Durno, uh, the partner at uh, Rockstar AgriFood. Hey, Mark, thanks so much for taking time to talk. Of course. Good afternoon. And before we dive in, a quick disclaimer. We, uh, uh, Mark and I have known each other for almost two years now, I think. We, we used to work together when I was at Rockstar, but uh, not anymore. And now Mark is here in uh, Copenhagen, uh, away from the Netherlands, uh, where we used to work together. So what are you doing here uh, ma mainly just catching up with you Andre <laughs> <laughs> no we're, uh, I'm here leading the uh, Rockstar Agri-Food program which is uh, our newest uh, domain that we launched and uh, this is an accelerator plus follow-on fund that we've based out of Copenhagen Denmark interesting why Copenhagen we uh, we wanted to have an international footprint for the for the agri-food domain and we felt that uh, we already had quite a, a lot of strong partners in the Netherlands, and that's quite a strong focus on precision farming, uh, high-tech agriculture and horticulture. And we wanted to complement that both internationally and also on the gastronomy side. And, uh, and with some strong Danish partners, this became a very obvious location to land. Also, Denmark, in terms of scaling food tech or food tech companies internationally, has a, has a really strong track record. So we wanted to, to build into that community. Right. And uh, so how about yourself personally? What's your background? What connection do you have uh, to agri-food in general? 
Yeah, so I come from a, a farming background in Scotland. We still have a farm of about 350 hectares in Scotland. Uh, over the years, um, within agriculture, I've worked with everything from livestock to arable crops, um, organic production, all the way through to starting a company that was focused on vertical farming as a, as a first mover before it was called Vertical Farming <laughs> back in 2010. How did you call it? Back then, urban gardening or urban farming, uh, but it was very much at a commercial level, so it, it ultimately was that. Uh, so yeah, so my whole life I've been connected to food production, and then that through the vertical farming company that expanded out to actually a consumer brand that was in the supermarket as well. Right. So Rockstar Agrifood, how do you? Uh, what's the program like? Yeah. So the the accelerator itself is a six month accelerator. It's not a full-time program. Mm -hmm. We do what's called a deep dive week. So once a month, we come together with the startups and we, we, we basically take those entrepreneurs out of their businesses for a week because many of them are already actually ongoing companies, mm -hmm. slight, slightly later stage uh, than, than the usual accelerator batches that we've seen. And uh, those entrepreneurs come out of their operational moment so we can have a strategy week and really deep dive into specific things that the company is working on. So that means that there's a customized nature to the accelerator, allowing us to really look at the specific startups that are in the batch and also tailoring it for the agri-food industry. So you have basically departed from the standard accelerator model when uh, people just uh, come to uh, your place and uh, stay for six months and uh, work on the, under one roof. Yeah, I don't think anybody needs another business model canvas workshop. I think the standard model uh, had, its, had its place, but if you apply that within an agri-food setting, you kind of miss the mark, you miss the target. This is about, Rockstart's always about providing access to startups in terms of market and capital and expertise. So it needs to be customized for the, uh, for the domain because agri-food is a difficult industry to, to, to break into. And it needs to be customized for the businesses that are actually in the program. And Does it also mean that you're looking for a later stage companies than a traditional accelerator would? Not necessarily, uh, but what we've found is that the companies that are, are looking to work with us are slightly later stage. And mm -hmm. I think that's a combination of things. One is because agri-food, we're on the ground floor just now in terms of development for tech within agri, the agri-tech and food tech um, mm -hmm. approach. So that means that the, the, the sophistication of some of the strong companies is just slightly later stage and looking for that access point. And the second thing is because we can continue to co-invest up to Series B, then those startups see that we've got a longer term trajectory. So, so uh, a later stage company can come in and say, okay, I'm going to be raising a Series A next year and Rockstart will still be there with me. It makes much more sense. Right. And speaking of agri-food, so how is it actually different fundamentally from everything else? What's the, what's the specifics here? In terms of the program or? In general, like as, as an industry, as an industry you as an accelerator working in. Yeah. So typically agriculture and food, I mean, you're talking mostly about commodity products here. Old industry, traditional industry, relatively old technologies, despite the fact that we've seen exponential growth in terms of yield over the last 100 years. In terms of technology into the agri-food industry, it's severely underserved. You look at simple things like the sharing of information or digitization of data, mm -hmm. and we're still talking about a farmer going with a pen and paper, and if you're lucky, they might put it in an Excel sheet, uh, which stays in their, in their computer for the next 10 years, as opposed to being able to have a collective look at what's happening on our planet in terms of food production. So there's a huge amount of work to do in tying together this, uh, this food supply system. Right. And uh, just uh, quickly, uh, before we uh, move further, just a data point. So uh, what do you actually offer 
uh, to the startups that come for the program in terms of funding, uh, in terms of uh, program? Yeah, the, it's a standard offer uh, for all, all startups and it's 35,000 euros uh, in cash plus a six-month program uh, where we link them up to relevant industry mentors, investors, etc. We also guarantee co-investment into the next round. Right. And you take equity? Uh, not up front. It's a convertible loan agreement to begin with, so that right. we can keep things a little bit more pragmatic. And we also don't set any of the terms going forwards. So we always co-invest so that we can help and stand on the side of the entrepreneur. And we look for a professional lead investor to, to set the terms of the round so that we can, we can automatically co-invest in. Okay. So agri-food, uh, back to that. Uh, how do you see the landscape, let's say, of uh, agri the agri-food industry uh, across Europe? Uh, it's, I mean, it's, that's an enormous question. There's, there's so many segments to it and there's so many parts to it and it's such a complicated... It's really wide. Uh, yeah, it's really broad. I mean, we look at everything from soil to gut. And, right. And, and the reason that we do that, like all the way from planting the seeds to the point where you consume it and maybe even beyond after your consumption <laughs> in, <laughs> in certain ways, is because uh, part of the challenge with the agri-food industry is that it's very fragmented. We talk about the food supply chain mm -hmm. and where you have a chain, generally speaking, you have one stakeholder that touches two others. Whereas actually okay. in reality, that one stakeholder, let's say it's a processing and packaging plant, has an impact right the way across our system, whether it's in terms of waste or materials upcycling or um, uh, data sharing and, and optimization of distribution. There are so many different things to be optimized. So it's a massive topic. And the reason we look very broadly at it to answer that part is because we want to move towards this food supply system and away from this food supply chain, which is very mm -hmm. uh, yeah, suboptimal. Okay. So how is uh, what's your... Uh current cohort uh, like uh, where are the companies uh, coming from is it mostly danish is it not is it mostly european is it not yeah it's uh for the most part european indian and south american mm -hmm. startups we have a um we have of course got some danish cohorts uh which is which is fantastic because uh, the, these are companies that are on the ground and locally connected here um we've got a chilean startup mm -hmm. uh, focused on agritech we have two companies from india which also um, is also representative, actually, of the amount of Asian agri-tech and food-tech startups that applied for the program. 20% of all applications came out of Asia. Oh. Yeah. So, uh, and then we've got an Italian startup in the group, a Finnish startup, um, a company from Sweden that are, are lo looking at precision agriculture. So, good mix. Right. Right, that's very interesting. So I recently talked to uh, someone from uh, another place that used to be called Accelerator and now it isn't. And one of the thoughts that uh, we discussed was that right now it might not actually make sense to have accelerators as, uh, as, they, uh, as they used to be. Do you think it's different uh, with agri-food? Do you think the accelerator model actually still makes sense in this industry? Um, the generic standard type accelerator doesn't really make sense in any, any industry, in my opinion. But what does make sense is to create an access program. And the reason it makes sense for agri-food is because this is a relatively new industry in terms of, uh, in, in terms of tech disruption. Right. So new incumbents coming into the industry can find it very difficult to understand what the customer wants, understand how the corporates operate in this space, understand where the stakeholders are and how they're connected, and indeed find investors and capital that, is, that, are, that are strategic and focused on the industry. And that's what we really focus on with the acceleration component. We use it as a vehicle for that industry-specific access and, and uh, support. Right. Okay, Mark, thank you so much. That was it for my questions. Uh, thanks all for taking the time to talk and uh, enjoy the rest of Tech Barbecue. Thanks. Always a pleasure. 
Hello, welcome back to the podcast of Tech EU, episode number 141. It is time for the recommendation part, and I wanted to use my recommendation slot today to talk real quick about a topic that we have been following for a while, and that's uh, developments in the new taxation mechanisms that are fit for the digital age. So as you may remember, uh, France has already introduced a new 3% tax for companies whose revenues in France exceed 750 million euros. And now the question is whether we're going to see a similar thing happening elsewhere in Europe. And if so, then when it's actually going to happen. So our listener, uh, Jan Ochenasek, sent us a link to a public consultation document on this topic that was published recently by the OECD. Jan, thanks a million. Without you, I don't think I would have noticed this one. It's an 18-page document that's supposed to outline the possibilities of how the new tax regulation, also known as the unified approach would work in the future. And I will leave a link to the document itself uh, in the show notes and I will also add another link to a good overview of it uh, on a website called Lexology. Now, I will not pretend that I have understood everything laid out on those 18 pages. I am not a corporate taxation or a finance specialist. I don't have this uh, sort of background. But it still makes for an interesting read, uh, both for myself and I think for other people with a similar interest in tech, uh, because it kind of shows how many different questions have to be asked before we can expect to see the new tax happening at all. Uh, the big questions, of course, include uh, how we define the businesses that would need to pay the tax, and then how do we define the amounts that uh, these businesses would need to part with. Uh, the document includes a few proposals uh, on, to that end, so do go ahead and read it uh, if that's something you're interested in. In general, I guess the ideas are we either look at users, like how many users the companies have in a certain country, or we look at marketing spend uh, in the countries and so on. So it's kind of uh, gravitates towards uh, these ideas. So the public consultation uh, for uh, this document will last for another week. Uh, so if you want to send in a comment, you have until November 12th to do so. And then, as far as I understand, there will be a series of uh, meetings of the OECD committee, but then the OECD wants to reach consensus on this part of the new taxation mechanism in the first half of 2020. And that's not it. So this is, as I said, this is the first part. So so-called pillar one, and then there is also pillar two. So it's going to take it's going to take a while. And this is my general impression of uh, this whole thing. It kind of demonstrates, first of all, how far we still are from having anything like a Europe-wide taxation system for digital multinational businesses. And my bet here would be that if anything materializes before the year of 2023, we would be lucky. That being said, it's definitely a step in the right direction, I would say, and I'm really interested in uh, seeing what sort of uh, shape uh, it's going to take. Yeah, so thanks for sharing that, and thank you to our listener, Jan, for sending that uh, to you. That That's really interesting. Right. So, Natalie, podcast time. Yeah, so this week I have two podcasts to recommend. Following my podcast recommendation from the last week on The Vanishing Crypto Queen, which I hope everyone liked that. The last episode came out yesterday and it sounds really good. But I like sharing podcasts on here because I think there are a ton of great ones being made all the time. And I also think current solutions for podcast discovery are pretty bad. So if you need a startup idea, just throwing that out there. But also, if you have a suggestion for a great podcast, do share that with us and we'd be happy to share it on our program. Okay. 
So on to the recommendations. I have two that are window into the world of BC. And the first is the 50 in Tech podcast with a great episode um, from the last week featuring Marin Bannon, a partner from Jane VC on how to cold pitch a VC. And I'd encourage you to check out this podcast series. 50 in Tech is an initiative supporting and elevating women in tech and female founders. But this is a podcast really for everyone on lots of topics for early and growth stage founders with accessible advice that's illustrative and really transparent. And they have lots of great uh, speakers on there and really encourage you to check that out. Um, And also, I'd encourage you to check it out if you're looking at your podcast feed and you notice it is all voices from either men or alternatively from all women. um, That's a problem. So something maybe to break you out of your bubble a little bit. And next on the topic of podcast discovery, our friend Martin Bryant, formerly of The Next Web and currently of Big Revolution, has started a new podcast series that will be out soon, which is called Making Sense of VC. And this is a series that has been in the works for a while, and it really comes from Martin's work with startups of all sizes. What he kept finding was that in many cases, there's still a misunderstanding of the VC business model and how they operate. So it comes from a good place and knowing Martin, it'll be very well produced and excellent resource. He's got some great people appearing on it. So um, we have a link to it so you can put it in your podcast feed. So when the episodes are all out, they... um, will appear there. Yep, already subscribed uh, to that one. Uh, thanks a lot, Natalie, for the recommendations. I really like uh, when you recommend the podcast. I think uh, most of them actually also fit for uh, my podcast uh, listening taste. And I, I've just thought about the fact that I think most of the podcasts that I'm listening to today uh, have been referred to me by other people. It's not like I went into an app and uh, searched for something and then uh, chose uh, whatever podcast I wanted to listen to. Not at all. It was mostly either social media or just people I know talking about the podcasts and uh, saying that they are good and then I would add them. So yeah, discovery is not uh, fixed yet for sure. And and we've shared on here how there's a lot of investment going into the podcasting industry. So I think it's really a prime place for better mechanism. It's almost too much choice and not enough. Um, Apple recommendations can't be everything. They've been around for quite a long time. Let's try to evolve this a little bit. Absolutely. So if you're listening to it and have good recommendations for tech-related uh, podcasts, do let us know and maybe it will result in a long list of tech EU uh, best European or at least European-related uh, uh, tech podcasts that we would publish someday. As for this podcast, we have to wrap it up at this moment. I do hope you enjoyed it and if you did, tell a friend or colleague about the show and follow our updates on Twitter at tech underscore eu if you are not a subscriber yet subscribe today on your favorite podcast app audio engineering for this podcast is done awesomely by SoundPulse. that is sound-pulse.com please feel free to email us with any questions suggestions and opinions at andre at tech eu and natalie at tech eu natalie thank you so much for joining today great to see you great to see you andre and thank you all for listening You've done a great job balancing two dogs on your lap, which I can see on the webcam. So enjoy the rest of your day. Enjoy the rest of your week. Thanks for listening and talk to you next Wednesday. Bye-bye.